Hey, good morning, everyone. <clears throat> Welcome back. Another Bible study in the book of Philippians. You might have just heard the pages turning in my Bible because I am turning there. And you can do so as well if you have a Bible with you. Now, we are in the book of Philippians. Last time, it was really kind of just like a broad overview of the letter. Paul is writing from prison. We don't know exactly which imprisonment it is, but we know that Paul is not free to go, to come and go as he chooses, to associate with whoever he would like. Um, Paul is bound in chains. He's likely chained next to a Roman soldier. So everywhere he goes, he can't go anywhere alone. And everything he does is largely dictated or he's allowed to, to do what he does um, under an official of the Roman government. So Paul isn't exactly in a situation any of us dream about or would, or would desire. And yet he writes this letter from that condition. And as, as we had said before, we might find it ironic that this is the letter which Paul talks about joy and rejoicing so much, given his condition. You know, is that what we would write? If we were in prison, would, would this be the letter we would write? Clearly, clearly the Lord is at work in Paul in his life. He's able to look at his circumstances and see right through them to a much bigger picture of what is going on. This letter does not have a, uh, a, an ongoing argument like, say, Galatians or Romans uh, or, or even something like Ephesians. There isn't an ongoing argument. Paul is, this is a very personal letter. It's not personal the way the Timothy letters are, that are directed at a single person. But they are, it is more personal in the sense that Paul, especially in this section here, he's, he's talking about his affection for them. He's very thankful for them. Uh, so it's personal, it's personal in that way. And one of the main themes that we're going to see here today in this letter is unity. It isn't as prominent as it is in Ephesians, but it's there. So I'm going to go ahead and read the text, and we'll get into it. So we're starting in verse 3 of chapter 1. This, once again, is the book of Philippians. Paul says this. He says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. Here we go, there's joy. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more, with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is the word of the Lord. We're going to go ahead and stop right there. 
So Paul, uh, after he's, he's given his opening, he says, hey, it's, it's Paul. Timothy is with me. We don't know if Timothy is a, is a main contributor to the letter, but Timothy is there as well. Uh, he, he calls him and Timothy servants. Last time we talked about what it means to be, a, the, the word really here is slave. We talked about last time how we are all slaves to something. We're either slaves to our own appetites, slaves to sin, or slaves to the Lord. Who is the better master? So Paul identifies himself and Timothy as slaves. And of course, um, he, he also says that this is to all the saints. We didn't really get into what saints means. We can get into that another time. Also, he says it's to the overseers and deacons, which are the two offices that are consistently given in, in the New Testament for, uh, ch- for the church body. Uh, actually, there is no office of pastor. I'm, I'm go- only going to get into this for a moment. But there is no office of pastor. Pastor is a gift in the New Testament. I don't know if you knew that. The, the term pastor is used in the book of Ephesians as a gift. It's in a list of gifts that people have that are for the building up of the church. It is not an official office. In uh, this translation, it says overseers and deacons, which really means elders. And deacons were a group of people who, who served the church. They helped in the, in the day-to-day operations, you might call it. So deacons had to do with the operations. And elders have to do with the teaching and overall oversight of the church. So, um, so this is Paul and Timothy in their writing. And Paul begins with thanksgiving. I can imagine Paul is sitting there and he's thinking about this group of people, this particular group. Remember the churches back then were small. It wasn't like this was a 2,000-person church or something like that, or even a 500-person church. This is a, a, a living room full of people, probably. Not a, not a sanctuary full of people, closer to a living room full of people. So he knows every single face, probably. At least he remembers the faces of the people who were there when he was there. And he remembers the time that he spent with them. Paul spent some time in Philippi, wherever he went, and he planted churches, and he would stay there for a little bit when he planted a church. And so he remembers the time that they had together, and he remembers that fondly. And so he says, I thank my God when I remember you, which is often. And in all my prayers, whenever I do, I throw up prayers for you. And the reasoning behind this, I want to camp right here for a little bit. He says in verse 5, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. So what does it mean? What does, what does he mean when he says, your partnership with me in the gospel? Now there are two, there are two aspects to the gospel. And very often, sadly, these are, these are associated with political affiliations now. There's one side of the gospel that is, that is personal and individual. It's your personal salvation, you might say, your personal walk with the Lord, your personal relationship with Jesus, you hearing his voice, you wrestling with God as you read the scriptures and you wrestle in prayer and you deal with the disappointments in life and the things that you expected God would do, but, but they've never happened. Or you just expected, I don't know if you're hearing this and you're not a Christian, you just expect the universe to open up for you and, and for things to go your way and they didn't happen. That wrestling, 
That's part of the gospel, this individual side. But there's also a collective side to the gospel too, right? He says, you're partakers with me in the gospel. If it's just individual, it's going to be hard to do that part partaking together. We're not collectively having an individual experience. We're having both an individual and collective experience. So the partnership in the gospel is not a whole bunch of solo people running out there doing their own thing. There's a partnership. There's a, there's a togetherness to the gospel. And what Paul is probably specifically meaning here, because he was only there for a certain amount of time, right? He was there in Philippi for a year, maybe two years, and then he went on. So how is it that they're continuing to partner in the gospel? Well, probably because the church is still, it's still ongoing. They're continuing the work that Paul began. But also, it's very likely, we know this from the end of the letter, that they were sending Paul financial support. Paul couldn't run around and plant churches all over Asia Minor without any money. So Paul did have a side gig. He had his own, own tent-making business. But doing the work of the gospel, you can actually do more. You can dedicate more time to that if you're not having to spend as many hours making tents, is what Paul did. So he, he went on financial support, and probably he was making tents too. Paul was doing a lot of traveling, and traveling was expensive, it's very expensive in their day. It was not as easy to travel as it is for us. Think about it. You know, if you wanted to travel anywhere, very often you had to walk. And what happens when you have to walk? You have to stop more frequently, and it takes a lot longer to get anywhere. And because of that, it becomes more expensive. So, uh, Paul has an expensive lifestyle, not because he's doing anything extravagant, but because it takes money to push forward the gospel. You know, I, I have all these ministry ideas. Hey, we should get some young, young people in here. How are we going to get them here? Food. You got to just, you got to dump money. You got to dump money in order to, in order to see a return. So part of Paul's, uh, thankfulness towards them in their partnership with the gospel. What that partnership means is financial support. So I don't want to take a moment and say, for any of you hearing this, thank you to those of you who give financially, whether it's, whether it's to, to me personally or to the church that I'm a part of or to your own church, whatever it is, those who are able to give their time fully to the gospel work, we can only do that because you have partnered with us in the gospel. And not only with us, you're partnering with the Lord. He knows and he sees all that you give. Just want to encourage you with that. Because of your partnership in the gospel, Paul says, from the first day until now. That means they were supporting him from the beginning. And then in verse 6, he says this. Uh, He says, And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Now, we're going to talk about what that work is in a minute. I just want to point out in that verse. The one who began the work in you is the one who will bring it to completion. 
That should be a good word for us. That should be an encouragement to us. Because what that means is that God didn't jumpstart it and now it's on you to make sure you get to your destination. He's actually overseeing the entire process. For some of us, that might not be such good news because we want to be able to do it ourselves. Some of us are very sort of independently minded, myself included. And it can be... Uh, at worst, you'd say almost offensive that God wouldn't leave room for me to take care of it, for me to do it. The truth is he does leave room. And the way that we know he leaves room is because we fail. And our failure is one way of us knowing that God is giving us space. Because when God is with us, and if God were to give us zero space, there would be zero failure. But he does give us space. Nevertheless, like a parent with their children, God is there to help us. You know, when Trinity was learning how to walk, she takes one step, two steps, and then she falls and she gets back up again. Because I'm not there holding her hand the entire time, but I'm going to make sure when she falls, she doesn't crack her head open. I'm going to be overseeing her journey, learning how to walk. Now, it's very different from that, in a sense, in that I'm not the one who's speaking to, like, speaking to her mind, developing her neurons in her brain, developing her coordination the way that the Lord is, but I'm there as a voice of encouragement. She has the space to fall, but I'm going to make sure she doesn't actually get hurt. She's going to make it. So the Lord is the one. The Lord's the one who's going to bring your life, the good work that he's begun in you, he's going to bring that to completion. That is very comforting, especially, especially on those days where we feel like, I don't know if I'm actually making progress. I used to think I was doing really well here. And now, I don't know. Now I don't know. He's going to bring to completion the work that he's begun. Next verse, verse 7. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in my defense of the gospel. Once again, notice the stress on unity here. Before he said, I thank my God because of your partnership in the gospel. From the, from the first until now. Here he says, you're partakers with me of grace. Once again, notice that, that collective, that we going on. We're all partakers of grace and we're partners in the gospel. It isn't like, oh man, that sucks, Paul, bummer. See you, we got our own thing going. No, they're, they're partnering and they're partaking of Paul. Uh, of, of Paul's suffering with him. They're partakers of grace. They're enjoying what God has given them, receiving the grace of the Lord Jesus along with him, whether he's in prison or not. They're still receiving grace alongside him. There's this togetherness. The gospel brings people together. Now, he says in verse 8, For God is my witness how I yearn for you with all the affection of Christ. Uh, Do you know 
Do you know that the Lord Jesus has affection for you? What that means is that Jesus likes you. He's not just doing his job and saying, well, I got to love him. I got to save him because that's I'm God. That's what I got to do. He actually likes you. His heart actually starts thumping fast when he thinks about you. He has affection for you. When he sees you, his eyes light up. When I come home, I come in the back door and I can hear my daughter from the other side of the room go, Ta-ta! And then I hear these little steps. Thump, 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 thump. She has affection for me. And when, of course, as a parent, who doesn't, when they hear their child call and they hear those tiny little footsteps, whose affections are not awakened for their child and think, oh, here she comes. Oh, I can't wait to get this hug. There's a shared affection between Paul and the Philippians. And that is rooted in Jesus' affection for them. If you live alongside people either in your family or roommates, or you're actually practicing the gospel with other people where you're sharing life, and they get on your nerves, which is going to happen if you're sharing life. If you are sharing life with people who get on your nerves, if you find in yourself no affection for them, and you want to have affection for them, which you should hope that that would be a desire. Might I suggest that the key is not that you sit there one day and just try and will yourself to have affection for people whom you do not have it, but rather to go to Jesus and say, Lord, show me the affection that you have for this person or this group of people. Show me your heart for them. Share your affection for them with me so that I might have it too. You know, the Lord is not primarily interested in us merely obeying him with white knuckles and gritted teeth. Just as long as we get the job done, that is actually not so much what he is interested in in getting out of us. What he wants is heart-to-heart connection. And what that means is affection. That's what love is for God. See, we we think of love, we end up on, on two sides of this love spectrum here. In our culture, love primarily has to do really with affection, with what you feel for someone or something. Has to do with your feelings, and your affections. And so if the affections die down and go away, you say there is no more love and there's no more connection. And so people get in serial dating relationships, serial marriages, married three, four, five times. Just one after another after another. Why? Because the affection wanes and then you say, well, that means love is gone. So it's mere mere affection or mere emotion. The other side of love is, is a response to that that says, oh, no, 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 no. Love is not a feeling. Love is an action. Love is a verb. If you love somebody, you do things. 
Actually, both of them are right. But there's a big difference between doing the loving thing with zero affection and having affection that drives you to do the loving thing without even thinking about it. And sometimes, sometimes we do have to do it out of duty because we don't feel the affection. But it isn't enough to say, okay, well, I did the thing. I'm good. No, we need the affection too. Do you see why? Do you see why your heart, you can't, pro, you can't reprogram your heart and make, you can't by a force of will make yourself have affection. And the primary commandment, Jesus said, is to love, that, is also, that includes to have affection for God above all. And for your neighbor, for the people around you, and for the people who get on your nerves. Do you see why this is impossible and why we need grace? If, it, if love were merely an action and so you could just get by with gritting your teeth and doing the loving thing even while you harbor hatred in your heart for your, for your enemy or even the people who get on your nerves, if that were enough, then okay, maybe it would be possible for some people who have a very, very strong will to be obedient. But the fall goes all the way down to the heart and the affections, and you don't have control over that. This is why we need Jesus. So, Paul has the affection of Christ for his Philippian friends. Go to Jesus if you find yourself lacking in affection. Last part, last section here. Paul's prayer for the, for the Philippians. He says, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. That is one very long run-on sentence, but it's so packed. It's so packed full. That's a big prayer. Well, I mentioned again, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. This is part of the good work that Paul is talking about. That good work that God has begun in you is to make your love abound more and more. And once again, don't forget that love includes affection. Not just to make you a person who does the right thing sort of mechanically or without thinking about it. Not just the kind of person who is obedient and worthy of praise for your compliance, but a person who was bursting forth and overflowing with love, with personality that just gushes. Your love might abound. It's not just that you would have adequate love, Paul's prayers, your love would abound more and more. It would just increase and overflow. Would abound more and more. And it's key that this is the first thing that he prays for. He doesn't say, I pray first that you would be well behaved. Or I pray first that you would get the right information in your head. 
Remember, Paul says in, in the Corinthian, I think it's the first Corinthian letter, he says, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. And that's why love comes first. Love will drive you to get the knowledge you need. Love will drive you. Love is a big motivator. And it will drive you to get the knowledge and wisdom and discernment you need. Now, discernment and knowledge... When I say this, I'm not saying knowledge, discernment, wisdom are not important. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that these two decoupled from one another will become problematic. See, because our, our affections are fickle and they can latch on to things that are not good for them to latch on to. Great example. I have great love for sweets. It's not good for my love to attach to those things. I need knowledge to say, hey, you need to, you need to turn your affections. Now, in a, less, in a less silly and more serious manner, we also have love for things that are less silly and consumptive, like, uh, like sweets. We all love comfort. It's a great example. Our, uh, our affection for ourselves, our love of comfort, not being uncomfortable, or our love of freedom, of not in, in the sense of not being interfered with. Those loves, those affections, have to be coupled with knowledge that says, it isn't good for you to have this all the time. It isn't good for you to have this as often. And that's why there's an abounding love. Paul prays for abounding love, but also discernment. So that, he has a so that in here. Why is this discernment important? So that you may approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. So approve what is excellent. It is not excellent for me to sit on my couch. It is not excellent for me to seek myself and my own comfort over what is good for other people so that we can approve not just what is good, but what is excellent. That means what is the best. Very often our life where we fall short is that we choose a lesser good over a greater good. One of the things I think that Augustine was right about was that he said, our, our problem is not so much that we love evils. For, for some of us it is. When you, when you don't know the Lord, you don't realize it. But when you come to know the Lord, you get less of an appetite for, for just straight up evil. In fact, nobody, I think, really loves evil because it is evil. They love something that they believe is good. And either they think that this evil thing is good or they think that a good outcome will be the product of indulging in a certain evil behavior. It's really a love of something that is good, but it's a lesser good at the cost of a greater good. We have disordered loves, disordered affections. I love my family. I love my wife. I love my children. I love the Lord. But if it comes exactly in that order, that's the wrong order. It's a disordered love. 
needs to be the Lord first, everything else after. That is how we will be pure and blameless, is knowing what is excellent, what is best, coupled with affection for what that is. Because very often we do know what is best, and we just can't seem to do it. We can't seem to follow through with pursuing and giving ourselves to what is actually best. That's why we need that affection along with the knowledge. So we may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled, he says, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. See, when, if you have that affection motivating you along with the knowledge and the discernment to know what is best, driving you into it, then you will be pure and blameless. Then you will be filled with the fruit of righteousness. And notice that Paul says that comes through Jesus Christ, not through yourself. You're not going to be able to do this on your own. Once again, you're not going to be able to assert your will upon your heart to get it to have affection for things that it ought to have affection for. And you're not going to be able to know what is truly excellent, what the greatest good is. I mean, you can always say the greatest good is loving the Lord. But then behind that, we are fraught with ignorance and darkness unless the Lord himself shows us, unless the Lord himself awakens affection in our heart, unless the Lord himself shows us, gives us that knowledge and discernment. Unless he is giving to us, that is, unless his grace is poured out, as Paul says in Romans chapter 5, the love of God is poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit. We will not be filled with the fruit of righteousness. It's through Jesus Christ. Through him we are filled. A cup cannot fill itself. A cup cannot fill itself. A cup can pour, a cup cannot fill. We are like that cup. In order to be filled with the fruit of righteousness, Jesus Christ has to pour it into us. So if you're straining, if you're straining to live a godly and righteous life, It isn't a bad thing to seek it, or it's likely that you have an affection for the Lord that's driving you into that. Praise God for that. At the same time, don't forget to let him fill you. Don't forget that it is he who is supplying you. You will fail. And that's why there's grace to always fall back on. Say, Lord, fill my cup. Fill me up with the fruit of righteousness. This is a prayer that we can pray. Paul prays it for them. We should pray it for ourselves and for each other. I pray this over my children. 
At some point I memorized this. That they might be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. That their love may abound more and more with all knowledge and discernment so that they may know. So that they may approve what is excellent. So be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. It's all for him. The day of the Lord, I'm just going to mention very briefly, the day of Jesus Christ is the day of the Lord when he will return. Someday, every single human being is going to come face to face with the Lord Jesus. Every single human being will. The moment a person takes their last breath, the first thing they are going to know is that the gospel is true. And that's either going to be good news or bad news. They're either going to go, oh, so happy to be home. I believed it. I knew it. Or they're going to say, oh, my stars. I can't believe it was true. Every single person is going to come face to face with Jesus one day. That is the day of Jesus Christ. For, For one generation, they're going to come face to face with Jesus because he's coming back here. For the rest of us, we'll face him on our dying day. But either way, everyone is going to face him. I want to be pure and blameless for that day. I want to be filled with the fruit of righteousness. I want the Lord Jesus to make his love and affection abound more and more in my life knowledge and discernment. I pray the same goes for you. Come to the Lord Jesus now and ask him for these things. He's ready and willing to give.